I, uh, I have to read this to you because it just fits today with the snow coming down and everything. And somebody posted this online, so maybe you saw it. Um, and I don't know, maybe it's been around a while, but me not being from South Dakota, I'm not sure if I've seen it, but it's a Dakota's poem. It says, it's winter in Dakotas and the gentle breezes blow, 75 miles an hour, 35 below. Oh, how I love Dakotas when the snow's up to your butt. You take a breath of winter air and your nose gets frozen shut. <laughs> yes, the weather here is wonderful, so I guess I'll hang around. I can never leave Dakotas because I'm frozen to the ground. <laughs> so that definitely fits... Uh, what is happening. I know, you know, my mom was born and raised in Rapid City, and, and uh, she used to tell us how deep the snow got. And my mom's not an exaggerator, but I, I just felt like, can it really be that deep? Um, but anyhow, I guess I need to trust, trust mom uh, for what she said. Today, we are talking about the mission and message of the kingdom. Uh, if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6, uh, we'll continue our series on journey with Jesus. And we're going to focus on the first uh, 12 verses of this chapter. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. They, these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you hear, enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. And then verse 13 should say, They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. The first thing I want to remind us of to carry out a mission. First of all, there is a message that goes with that mission. But to be able to even carry out that mission and communicate a message requires a level of authority. And so what Jesus does is he establishes his authority, he reveals his authority, in the opening pages of the Gospel of Mark. Um, if we take the time to look at it, and we've looked at several of these, and it's easy once we hear this, we're like, oh, I've heard that before, I've heard that before. But I think we need to grasp the significance of what Jesus is doing. That in Mark chapter 1, he heals the sick, and he delivers people from demon possession. 
In Mark 2, he heals a paralytic man, showing his authority also that he is Lord of the Sabbath. In Mark 3, he heals a man with a withered hand, and evil spirits fall down before him. In Mark chapter 7, which we haven't gotten to yet, he delivers a little girl from an evil spirit. He heals a deaf and a mute man. In Mark chapter 10, he heals a blind man. In Mark chapter 11, he curses a fig tree and it withers. So we see Jesus' authority is revealed and he reveals his authority to show that he is on a mission and he has a message that is worth listening to. Because the reality was there were many rabbis, there were many intellectuals, there were many scholars, philosophers, teachers that were running around spouting their message and trying to make a living. But Jesus is saying, I have a different authority. Jesus' authority was so great that he stood far above and was far superior than these other people. And that's why he was drawing such a crowd along the way. But how was Jesus' authority? Was it received? No. Jesus' authority is rejected. We see this in Mark chapter 3, verse 7, after he heals the man with the withered hand. They reject him. And they continue to reject him. Here, even in this passage, we see the same thing. So here it tells us that Jesus left there and he went to his hometown. What was his hometown? It was Nazareth. What happened in Nazareth? What kind of place was Nazareth? Nazareth was not the kind of place that turned out great rabbis and teachers or anybody else for that matter. It was actually kind of a despised place. First of all, it was a very small place. Nazareth, they say, population-wise, in Jesus' day, probably ranged from 200 to 500 people, max. We thought Huron was little. I mean, 200 to 500 people, max. Uh, it encompassed about an area of about 60 acres of hilly, rocky land. Even Nathaniel asked Jesus in John chapter 1, he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's the kind of place it was. Can anything good come out of this? Nazareth was about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum. It was not a popular place. In fact, historians say that there wasn't even the existence of a church in Nazareth until A.D. 325, under the reign of Constantine. But here, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's got his apprentice disciples with him. He left there, and he's accompanied, the Bible says, with his disciples. And he's teaching them. How did they receive his teaching? Well, not very good, because if you look in the end of... Uh, Verse 2, it says, the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. They were amazed, but they were amazed because they could not believe what he was saying could possibly be true. Because when you look at the very next phrase, they said, where did this man get these things? Notice they called him this man. They didn't call him rabbi. They didn't call him Messiah. They didn't call him anything other than this man. Where did this man well, they knew who he was. It was in his hometown. They didn't even call him by his name. 
Where did this man come up with this? It was a condescending way to approach Jesus. And indirectly, he is being peppered with all these questions that appear to be asked in a sarcastic way. Where did he get these things? Where did this wisdom come from that's been given him? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Interestingly enough, they didn't say, isn't this Joseph's son? They said Mary's son. Well, in a couple other of the Gospels, it said that he was the son of Joseph. And here you're in a patriarchal uh, culture, and they're referring him to Mary. Why would they do that? Well, there's a couple possibilities. One is that maybe Joseph had already died. The second one is maybe perhaps they were pointing to the fact that he was born of a virgin and he had an illegitimate birth. We don't really know for sure, but it just seemed to be done in a sarcastic way. And then it says that they took offense at him at the end of verse 3. They took offense at him. This comes from the word scandal that we use, to be offended at his character, his words, and his conduct. They did not believe him. And I think one of the reasons they didn't believe him is because he was so ordinary. And he was so local. They knew him. They knew his family. And he didn't seem to fit. He didn't fit their mental framework of what they were looking for in a Messiah. He didn't fit their belief system. Jesus didn't fit what they had previously been taught. So here's a question. What message did you hear growing up? What message did you receive about Jesus? Because there are a lot of people who have a lot of ideas and concepts about Jesus, but they have the wrong ones because they weren't taught the biblical way, the biblical truth. And they could have even been in a church that did not teach and preach the Bible. And so therefore their concept of Jesus and God is warped. Because it's based on their understanding of who God is rather than based on the reality of who Jesus said he is. But here's one thing for certain. You can't remain neutral. His teaching demands a response. And our response to his teaching is how we live. What do we do with the teaching? The amazing thing to me is that here Jesus is among family and friends, and you would think of all people, his family would receive him. But remember a few chapters earlier, they said he's mad. Let's get him out of here. Jesus would have failed the course how to win friends and influence people. Do we see Jesus for who he really is? Or do we attempt to squeeze Jesus into our mold of what we want him to be? And I think that's something we all have to continue to work with in our lives. To come to understand Jesus for who he really is. Their lack of faith. Notice what he says. He healed only a few people in verse 5. He could not do many miracles there except to lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. They did not believe. And their lack of belief hindered the ministry of Jesus. A lack of faith will cause people to buckle under trials. Our perseverance is developed or destroyed by our lack of faith. Or the growth of our faith. Spiritual maturity is developed or destroyed by our 
faith or lack thereof. Well, here's the part we want to focus on today, majority of the rest of our time, that Jesus' authority is reproduced in the disciples. It was revealed, it was rejected, but it was reproduced in the disciples. We see this looking down at the end of verse 6. Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two. He gave them authority over evil spirits. He sends them out two by two. He duplicates his power in the disciples. He is multiplying his efforts by delegating the disciples to the same power he had. Now he's got six groups plus himself. And he sends them out. What is, here's a question. What is the effectiveness of Bethesda in the Huron community? What is our effectiveness in the Bethesda, of Bethesda in our Huron community? I'm going to say it depends on two things, and I'll share those in a moment. But Jesus sends them out, and he tells them to take nothing for the journey, not even an extra tunic, which was an extra garment. They would have like two shirts, as it were. And Augustine said, putting on two coats implies double-mindedness, a burden of deception that a rigorous journey does not need. Another commentator said, apostolic mission must not be weighed down with extravagant wishes or mundane yearnings. Don't walk in duplicity, but in simplicity. He tells them to take nothing for their journey. That would be easy for millennium. Millennial, right? I mean, they, they, they take off and don't take anything anyhow. But what about for us? We like to have everything, all of our ducks in a row. But I want us to think for a moment, when Jesus sends them out, where is he sending them to? The surrounding villages and towns. But who is he sending them to? What kind of people is he sending them to? Well, if you flip over to Luke chapter 10 for a moment. Here Jesus sends out 72. In verse 1 it says, After this the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. And he tells them the same thing. Don't take a purse or a bag or sandals and don't greet anyone on the road. Kind of the same type of thing. And, of course, they didn't take a bag because a bag would have bread in it and other supplies. And he tells them, don't even take that. And don't take the bag because sometimes other teachers go out and they take their bag and they beg for money and they want people to give to them. Just take the message. But where did he say? Take it among the wolves. Now think about this. Sheep going to wolves is dangerous. Is it not? Because wolves are vicious. They are vicious animals. They are antagonistic. 
They are, in this instance of Scripture, unconverted. There are wolves that try to look like sheep when they're around sheep. They use sheep speech. They try to watch the sheep and mimic the sheep. They try to look and act like the sheep. But their true nature is there are, they are a wolf. There are some wolves, though. Why is he sending them to the wolves? Because there are some wolves who are ready to become sheep. That's what he's telling us. And that's important because here's the deal. What does a wolf look like today? A wolf looks like someone who's addicted to drugs. Jesus is saying there are some wolves out there, drug addiction, and I am going to deliver them. There are other people who are maybe enslaved with human trafficking, wolves. I'm sending you out to the wolves because there are some people who are ready to be converted out of human trafficking. There are porn addicts, wolves. I'm sending you to those wolves, those porn addicts, because they are sick of being sick. And I'm going to deliver them out of that so they can be changed from a wolf to a sheep. It's a powerful message. Who else can transform a wolf to a sheep other than the shepherd? And why can we go to the wolves? Why would sheep even bother going to the wolves, to those people? I'll tell you why. Because we have a great shepherd. We have a shepherd who has the power, the authority to deliver them from every disease, every sickness. We see him deliver the demonic man just the last chapter. He has the power to do it. Do we believe it? See, I ask the question, what is the effectiveness of Bethesda in the community? And I say it depends on two things. One, it depends on our faith in the shepherd and sending us out. We get out of our comfort zone. We get out of the four walls of the church and we go to where people are, where they're hurting, where they're enslaved in sin, where they're living like a wolf. And we take the gospel to them as a sheep in humility and dependency and trust that God is going to deliver some of them. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. There's few sheep that want to go to the wolves. But that's who God sent us to. Because there was a time when I was a wolf. There was a time when you were a wolf. And God wants to save them. And he wants to use people at Bethesda Church. We have a shepherd who loves us and cares for us and provides for us and protects us. He gives us peace and joy and contentment and rest. Let me ask you another question. Whose idea is it for the sheep to go to the wolves? Is that my idea? Is that your ABF teacher's idea? Is that the elder's idea? Is that the deacon's idea? No. It's the great shepherd's idea. It's not mine. I'm simply called to obey and respond. And you know what? The more we get to know the shepherd, you should not... The shepherd should never have to beg the sheep to go to the wolves. If we know the shepherd. 
If we believe in the mission of the shepherd and the message of the shepherd, we, he doesn't, he shouldn't have to beg us to go. He's already told us four times in the gospels, go in all the world and preach the gospel. Go, go, go. And I think we have a sending problem in the church, don't we? I think we have a sending problem. He gave them authority. He said, calling the twelve, he sent them out two by two and he gave them authority. He's given us authority as his sheep to go to the wolves and to reach them with the gospel. So the question is, are we refusing to go? Have we heard the call? Are we resisting the call? Do we use the excuse, well, we need more time to prepare? Jesus says, don't prepare, go. <laughs> if you've been in church a while, you're more than likely prepared <laughs> to go. He says, take nothing. And then, he tells them, if they don't listen to you, shake the dust off your feet. Don't have anything to do with them as a testimony. He says, don't even bring anything back. Because we don't need any of that wolf stuff back here. Just shake the dust off your feet. But he tells them to go. And here's what he tells them. Look in verse 12. They went out and preached that people should repent. Where did they get that message? Well, I think they got it from Jesus because that's exactly what Jesus did. If we go back to Mark chapter 1, listen to this verse 14 and 15, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. They were repeating the shepherd. His authority was reproduced in them, and they were repeating what the shepherd said. And this is extremely important that we repeat what the shepherd says. <coughs> And when he talks about preaching here, it comes from a word that means to be a herald. And so I want to take a moment here and look. We already looked at this. Actually, right before this, he says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? In other words, if the sheep don't go to the wolves, how are they going to hear? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? A wolf is not going to preach to another wolf. It can happen. We are the ones with the message. We are the ones called to mission. And so, as a herald, there are four qualities of a herald we want to take a moment and look at. If we are going to be the faithful heralds the sheep that God has called us to be to take the message to the wolves. Here are four qualities of a herald that we should possess. Number one is a good voice. And here's what I mean by this. Without a powerful voice, we're useless. You can't just be an example and say, look at my life. We have to be a powerful voice. He said preach. He meant with a voice. 
Use your voice. Make it powerful. Make it clear. In some cases, heralds had to pass a voice examination. Because <laughs> if they didn't have the right kind of voice, they couldn't be the herald. So they had a voice. Because he had to be one who would declare official decrees and announcements. Secondly, he had to have a good character. He was not inclined to be excessively talkative because excessively talkative people tend to exaggerate and spread fake news. He doesn't need somebody spreading fake news. You see, because the herald was responsible to give the message as it was given to them. The message does not originate with us. I don't manufacture the message of repentance or the gospel. We proclaim it. We proclaim it with our voice. We proclaim it with our character. We proclaim it with our lives. And Jesus needs sheep who are going to repeat the message that we've been given. But unfortunately in our day we have many people who are watering down the message. Well, we're not going to get into those social issues. We're not going to talk about those things. Those are political things. The scripture talks very clearly about moral issues. Spiritual issues. And we will continue to proclaim those. Even when they're not popular. And call people out of sin to a life of repentance. And salvation. Thirdly, he adopts the mind of the one who commissions him. Heralds are bound by the precise instructions of the one who commissions him. He is the mouth of his master. Here's what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Because if you're a herald, you want to tell the truth. So Paul is telling them, because he was accused of possibly being a charlatan, he says, the appeal we are bringing to you doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Oops. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Paul is saying, I am coming as a herald of the gospel to proclaim to you the message I received. And I'm just being faithful to that. And that's what God has called us to do. And then the fourth one is to act with the authority of their master. If we are going to be a faithful herald, we act with the authority of the master. Noah, in the Old Testament, the Bible says, was a herald. Here is in 2 Peter 2.5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, a preacher of righteousness, one who proclaimed verbally with a loud, clear voice and with a character and with one who was in line, his mind was in line with the commission of his master. Herald of righteousness. When he brought the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Paul was also a herald of righteousness for which I was appointed a preacher, a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. 
He says in Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed. That's the herald's job, to proclaim in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, become a minister. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 10.15, how can anyone preach unless they are sent. They are sent. This message of repentance, what does it mean to repent? It means to change one's mind about one's previous life and course of action. To be done with a sinful life. To be done with the things that violate scripture. And to turn our life over to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a transformation that takes place in our lives. Until recently, the only way they said they could study how, how a caterpillar changes to a butterfly was to cut open the chrysalis or x-ray it, and both had fatal results. But a recent issue of National Geographic reported on new micro CT scans that show how metamorphosis takes place from a caterpillar to a butterfly. They said metamorphosis is a radical change in form and function. And there are other animals that go through it as well. Frogs, sea urchins, wasps, beetles. But scientists are only, they say, beginning to grasp the miracle of what goes on in that little chrysalis. New research shows that the insect's makeover, and I thought this was interesting, is a mix of destruction of old ways of being and thinking combined with brand new ways of being and thinking. The article notes that certain cells die and body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, other cells in place since birth rapidly expand. The adult emerges completely remodeled, capable of flight. And here's the neat part. And possessing a completely rewired brain. See, what, what the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of Jesus, is he rewires the brains. He changes us from the inside out. He changes a wolf to become a sheep. Total transformation. Every day, FedEx sends out over 4 million packages to more than 220 countries. They said in order to send well, FedEx has over 170,000 employees, 675 aircrafts, 50,000 ground transportation vehicles, and 1,800 office locations. They said it's amazing how they figured out how they can turn around the package in a day. The church may not be in the package delivery business, but we are in the people delivery business. At least that's what Jesus wants the church to be. Sending people, though, isn't always the top priority in churches, if we're honest. And the church hasn't done a good job of sending out laborers for the harvest. 
FedEx operates with a deep conviction that everyone in the world should have the ability to send and receive packages. God may not be as concerned about the packages of FedEx to be delivered on time, but the scriptures make it clear that God desires all people to receive the message of salvation and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The people should have the ability to send and receive eternal hope. Question, what is God's distribution plan? His people. It's us. It's the sheep. Who are we impacting with the gospel of Jesus Christ? The mission that we are called on. Are we carrying out that mission? Are we carrying that message into the world to wolves who are hurting? There was a group of prospective teachers that were called on to work with difficult children. Children have been through difficult things. And as they worked with those children, their hearts changed. They began to develop a love for those children. They began to develop a compassion and a heart for those children that they never possessed before. And I think if we're going to develop a heart, we have to study the scriptures, but then we have to go to the walks. We have to see what they're struggling with and what they're hurting with and we have the message of the gospel to take to them. We have the hope. We have the peace, the joy, the power of the gospel to change them from the inside out. There was a lady named Nancy Abel. She met up with a Katharina in Rome and she encouraged her to turn back from her long hike. But she only had 150 miles to go for her solo hike along the Pacific Crest Trail. Grown wanted to see her adventure through, and Abel met Grown last month in Washington after she had walked 2,500 miles northward. It was late in the season, and Abel was concerned because Grown didn't have snowshoes. She couldn't stop thinking about the German hiker all alone in the mountains. A few days later, when forecasters said to expect two feet of snow in the mountains, Abel called the county sheriff's office, explained that Grone might be in trouble. On the mountain, Grone was dehydrated and disoriented and thought she might have frostbite. She kept falling down and having to will herself to get back up which is a sign of hypothermia. Surrounded by evergreens that were sinking under the weight of the snow, she screamed for help. No one heard her. She got out her phone and she began recording messages for the friends and family she hadn't seen for months, apologizing for dying on the trail. Officers launched a search and soon found her. Rescuers said it's likely she would have died within a day. 
but somebody cared enough to send rescuers to find her. What are we going to do? There are some people out there, some wolves, who are dying on the trail. They're dehydrated. They're facing frostbite. They're facing death. They're facing an eternal destiny apart from Christ. What is the church going to do? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. It is very hard with our schedules and the busyness of our own families and our own responsibilities sometimes to take the time to think about the wolves. The ones who are collapsed on the trail of life and have no means of survival. They are totally dependent on the obedience of the sheep to come and bring them hope. How do we do it? It's an overwhelming task. I think we need to pray and say, God, what do you want me to do? Who are some wolves that I should be reaching out to right now? And see, these could be the people that are the furthest away from the Lord that we could imagine. I mean, we wouldn't see them being saved in 50 years. But they may be closer to coming to Christ than the person who sits in church every week that is lost and has rejected the message. So what do we do? We take the message. We go in the authority of Jesus and we take the message to them. And family can be the hardest. I mean, Jesus, his own family, didn't receive his message. It's hard. It doesn't mean it's easy. But we need to be faithful to the task. Wouldn't it be wonderful if between now and the end of the year, God allowed us at Bethesda to be in contact with some wolves who between now and the end of the year begin to come to the church and hear the message of the gospel and become a sheep. I can't think of a greater thing that could happen because of our influence, because of our witness, our testimony, because of us being a herald with a good voice and a good character and adopting the mind of the one who has commissioned us. That's what he's called us to. He says, go into all the world. Preach the gospel. And it's not easy. There are times that I wanted to do it and I didn't have the courage. I'll be the first to admit it. God knows it, so I might as well say it. There are times that I've acted as a coward. And my guess is you've done the same. 
but that God would help us in reaching out to a world that is vicious toward the gospel, but that needs the truth. People need the truth. As I turn on the television, I listen to the news, and I, I hear the arguments, the political arguments that are going on. And there's so much of it that is not politics, it's morals. And we've turned it into a political agenda. God help us. Maybe there's a wolf out there who's ready to give up their baby. I mean, lose it. And God wants to rescue them. I'm thankful for the Plus One Guidance Center other agencies like that. There are so many. There's so much that needs to be done in our world and God is calling us as his sheep to go. Maybe you're here this morning you don't know the shepherd. You don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe you have very little understanding of the Bible because you haven't heard it. I would encourage you to come and hear God's word. God is calling you to himself. You're here for a reason. You're here for a purpose. God loves you and cares about you. And he wants to change your life. That we know. Because that's his mission. And that's the message. <laughs> you might come to know him personally. And have a shepherd. If, we have, if you have questions and we can answer those questions, please see us afterwards. I'd be glad to sit down with you and share with you God's word and We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda. M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.